everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ten Thousand Roads to Financial Independence. Today, I have Kent Ritter. Kent is on a mission to create modern, affordable housing for America for work workforce, while empowering others to take control of their financial future through real estate investing. He is the CEO of Hudson Investing, and since two thousand nineteen, has acquired four hundred forty units valued at thirty three million dollars. Additionally. Uh, Kent was also a partner and led a private selected business unit within the multifamily private equity firm Bridge and Management. Bridge and Held currently has over one point five billion dollar AMU. Prior to his real estate career, Kent was a partner in a management consultant firm where he played a central role in growing the business to ninety five employees and thirty million dollars in revenue in five years. His strong analytical background, experience managing multi-million-dollar projects and business,、uh, gained、uh, as a startup leader and corporate、uh, executive, give him a competitive edge as a real estate investor. He's blessed with an incredible wife, two daughters, and a son. Lived in in Indianapolis. <laughs> so,、uh, welcome, Ken, very much、uh, to our work show today. Thanks, Lisa. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, and Ken and I have met each other through a event、uh, about a couple years ago, perhaps a Jake Gino event or so.、Um, and、uh, so, and then since then, we've been kind of in and out, keeping each other in ca- catch. And it was really good to catch up with him in our show today.、Um, so, Ken, we always ask our folks,、um, our person who、uh, comes in, our guest, one question to start our show. Uh, which is when you think back in your childhood as you're growing up, who has influenced you most、uh, to become the entrepreneur who you are today? Yeah, that that is a really good question.、Um, you know, and, and th- there isn't necessarily one person that I can really highlight to say like, yeah, th- this was it. But you know, as as early as I can remember. I remember when people asked me what I wanted to do. It, it was、uh, own my own business, or, or be a CEO, or kind of just just be the leader of the business, right? I mean, even when I when I was a little kid, before I even really knew what an entrepreneur was, and so I think that a lot of that came from just growing up. I, I grew up, you know, pretty blue collar. My mom was a teacher. You know, my dad、uh, was an insurance an insurance adjuster, actually, and.、Uh, You know, we we were pretty modest, and, and I saw kind of, you know, the, the cap on. We had everything we needed, but I also saw the cap. I saw how how others around me were living, how friends were living, and I knew that that I just wanted something, something more. I also just always had it in my mind that I wanted to, to kind of be in control and and be the leader, I guess, and and that was what I, I've always. Really valued that attribute of people that can be, you know, strong leaders and be successful, and so、um, you know, probably coming from my parents, may, maybe more from a,、uh, you know, seeing their example and understanding how I wanted to do things differently.、Uh, I'm sure started to frame that when I was young, but I just remember from the very beginning wanting to to have my own business, and people would ask me, I'd say, well, I don't know yet, like what it's going to be, but I'm gonna I'm gonna own something. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Definitely. That's awesome. And、um, you, you basically, did you, as you're kind of growing up, the path is going to kind of college, get a job,、um, etc. Now, when did you kind of dabbled in、uh, or rekindled your spirits of entrepreneurship? A moment of a transition when that kind of come back to you. Yeah, I mean, it, so I'd say the spirit of entrepreneurship never really died.、Uh, I did, you know, go through school, went to college,、um, got a finance and economics degree, 
and always had, you know, always had this idea that, that I was going to, again, own my own business. And even in college, I didn't know exactly what that business should be yet. Yeah. But I, I, so what I, the way I looked at college was I wanted to set myself up to be successful for whatever that business is to come. And, and the, the clearest path I saw, I thought to be able to really understand how businesses work and, and what makes them succeed and fail was to become a management consultant. Because that's that's what management consultants do, right? That clients hire us and we help them solve their problems. Um, and so I was able to see over a 12 year career, hundreds of different businesses, you know, what worked, what didn't kind of, you know, through that identify the common themes that I'd say make businesses work and don't. Um, and really give me a, a, a framework for, for how to run a successful business. And so that was really how I, how I looked at college and, and how I looked at my initial career and said, okay, you know, I think I'll do that for like three, maybe five years and I'll go off and, and I'll start my own business. Well, I stayed in it for 12 years, but for the last, um, for, from, well, I guess the middle of it, actually, uh, I, I went to go work for a firm and then a few colleagues and I left that firm in, in 2010 and, and went and we started our own uh, consulting firm. It was a boutique consulting firm based in Chicago. We ran that until 2015. And per the bio, you heard the growth there, got it to 30 million in annual revenue, and then decided it was time to sell. And so we sold that at the end of 2015. And that then uh, is what really kicked off my real estate career. As I was going through my earnout from selling that business, had a couple of years where, where I needed to work for the company, uh, I really spent a lot of time ramping up and learning about real estate and really got interested in real estate investing. And so that was when I really started investing was in 15 and it was really passively investing at first with others to really just understand how all this works. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, um, how many projects do you have uh, invested passively? And then what are some of the learnings that you gained from there, you know, throughout the years? Yeah, passively, I think I'm up to 13 projects yeah. at this point. Yeah, it might be might be 14, but, you know, we're, we're around there. And some of the things that I've learned, uh, well, there's a lot of good lessons. Uh, one is 100%. It, it starts with the sponsor. You know, the sponsor is the most important thing, right? A good sponsor will can save a bad deal and a bad sponsor can kill a good deal. And, and, and I had that experience to the utmost extreme where I had a sponsor that I invested in uh, actually commit fraud and I lost uh, a good chunk of money in that process. That was one of the first investments I ever made uh, through a crowdfunding site. And and it was really you know shame on me for not doing the due diligence on the sponsor that I should have. And I don't know that that there would have been indicators that, that, that right. he was a bad guy, but, uh, but maybe, maybe I would have found something. I, didn't, I can tell you, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything related to the sponsor. And so for me, and that's what I try to really educate people on now is do your due diligence on the sponsor, you know, look for, look for integrity, look for track record, look for decent financial means themselves so that they can support a deal. If, if it does go South for a while, yeah. you know, and, um, and look for a willingness to, to put skin in the game. I and mean, those are the things that I look for in a sponsor, uh, somebody that's going to invest right alongside me. I mean, I wouldn't invest in a deal if somebody came to me and said, hey, this is a great deal. You should invest in it. Like, I'm not going to invest in it, but but you really should. You, you yeah. definitely should. Right. Um, so so I've, I've defined kind of those four criteria now. And uh, as I still invest passively, because I don't invest passively in multifamily anymore, because I, I run my own deals now and, and we're on our seventh at this point. 
But uh, I still invest passively in other asset classes like industrial and uh, medical office and storage and, and places where I'm not the expert, but I want the exposure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And now you mentioned about uh, finding these deals through crowdfunding versus um, in our traditional senses, you actually get to know the syndicator and invest with them. Now, do you have a preference between the two? Because oftentimes we get passive investor asking about like, hey, what's the difference between a crowdfunding platform versus just simply go and find who is the right syndicators and invest with them directly? What Do you have any uh, suggestions for our listener who are kind of thinking about that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, just the fact that I... So with a crowdfunding site, it's difficult to really vet the sponsor is what I found. It's difficult to, to get them you know, on the phone and be able to have a discussion. And, and really get get that gut check, right? Of do I do I resonate with this person? Is this someone that, that I could picture myself doing business with and trusting to to hand over a significant amount of money to, right? And uh, so for crowdfunding, you know that I think that's one of the biggest limitations for me. And I mean, in my opinion, it's much better to build a personal relationship with a sponsor. And and so I I started out on crowdfunding. That was me dipping my toe in in 2015. Right. when things were all still very new. Um, but as I can, as I begin to network and attend conferences and, and make relationships, you know, I, I don't do any crowdfunding anymore. I just go to the sponsors that I have relationships with and, and know well. And, and uh, it's really more this, this whole game should be more of a long-term relationship process, not a, a transactional business, which, which I think those crowdfunding sites can kind of boil things down to at times, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's all about, you know, just going back to the sponsor, trusting the sponsor, verifying that they're, what they're saying is true and, uh, and validating that, uh, there's somebody that you want to, you give your money to. And I, I don't think you can do that without having, you know, one or a couple of conversations with them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so now switching gear a little bit, it's very interesting because of where I show about not just investing, but also growing your entrepreneurship. Um, how, what kind of skill set? Um, or key um, areas of, like is there a crucial moment or maybe there's a couple moments back in the days of when you're building that consultant comfort, uh, firm to a 95 people employee which is a big operation um, <laughs> coming from one or two people um, and then 30 million dollar revenue um, can you kind of tease out a few things for folks who's kind of getting into their zoom thinking about entrepreneurship what are some crucial moments that help you growing to that level? Oh man, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there over like five, six years of business, but, um, crucial moments. So, so I could say it starts with a partnership. Uh, you have to have a strong partnership. You all have to have your interest in line and you have to, you have to, again, I mean, just like what I talked about that sponsor, you gotta know that they're good people, right? And that they're people that you're gonna be able to trust. Um, I think that's where a lot of people go wrong is they get into bad partnerships or maybe partnerships they haven't vetted out quite enough. Uh, I mean, you should enter a partnership like you enter a marriage. And I hope before you get married, you're having conversations about things like finances and yeah. long-term plans. And, you know, you know, if, if one of you wants to end up in California and the other one wants to end up in New York, like that's not going to work out well at some point. Right. And so same things with going into a partnership. If somebody wants to, somebody wants to grow a billion dollar business and the other person wants just kind of a lifestyle company where they can play golf three, day, three, four days a week, like, like those interests aren't aligned. Right. So I think it starts with 
vetting out your partnership and making sure that you're in a, a good partnership and your guys' goals are aligned. I think that's where everything starts. Um, from there, as far as just like tips for entrepreneurs, I think get, get your books right from the beginning. Uh, you know, it, it may, it's going to cost you more, right. To hire a bookkeeper from the start, but it's going to be well worth it. It's a heck of a lot more costly to have to go back and, um, redo your books. And, and if you ever want to sell your company in a meaningful way, you're going to want your books to be gap compliant. And that's something that, that is also quite expensive and you have to have audits and do all these things. But we did those things in our business because we always had an eye on selling at, at one day, at one point. And so we were probably way more sophisticated in our accounting than we needed to be, but it, it ultimately paid off. Um, when it was time to sell and we had years of clean books that were audited and, and were gap compliant. So that, that's a big one. Um, and then I, I guess the, the two things that I think really make or break businesses, and this goes back to my consulting side too, is, you know, you've got to have a solid org chart and then you've got to have so a solid set of standard operating procedures, uh, because the, the things that kill businesses are ambiguity and variation. And so you have to remove the ambiguity, right? By having clear delineations of responsibility, uh, clear understanding of role, clear incentives on that are aligned to, to what you want those people to do, clear measurement on how you're measuring them, what, what are the measurements for success, right? That they'll be incentivized on. Um, and then standard procedures for everything that you do. And the more that you can do that in your business, the, the, the faster your business can grow. And the more that you can maintain quality while it grows, because I mean, those are always competing forces, growth and quality. And so you've got to strike a balance there. And so those are, I guess, just some some high level tips. Oh, but uh, yeah, things to unpack over there. Now, you mentioned about the partnerships. Let's kind of go back a little bit more over here. And I see every single thing that you mentioned over here by picking your right partner. That's like kind of step number one getting your books right, selling your company, always have eyes on your goal, um, and then having solid org charts and operation manual. All these transition into any type of business. And I definitely think you're going to have really successful, uh, you already have very successful real estate investing firm now. You're just translating that now into you know growing that even more. So this is like a really, really great stuff. Um, and so, yeah. And then by just kind of going back to some of the stuff you were saying is like, so picking the right partner, did you always pick the right partners? Is there any incidences where it may seems to be the right idea, but then somehow people kind of grow apart and whatnot? And how do you actually like kind of mitigate the bad partnerships or, you know, just simply people kind of growing apart? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I've not always picked the right partners. I don't, I don't, you know, I think uh, everybody go, everybody goes through that. Right. But, uh, you know, I could say with my consulting business, the, the way that it was able to grow so quickly, um, was because of the partnership. And there were there at the end of the day, there were, there were six of us mm -hmm. and, uh, and we all had different roles and we all, we, we all were able to own our swim lanes and we were all able to, to trust each other that we were going to get done what needed to get done. And so that, that really was, uh, I think a very unique thing to come together with that many people and have it work. And, and I didn't recognize that at the time because it just kind of organically happened and, and worked, yeah. but now just hearing other people's stories and, and, and looking at entering other partnerships, 
um, through different real estate deals and things. I mean, I think that was really a, an odd thing for it to come together so well like that and really kind of a, a unicorn event. But, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I've, I wouldn't say I've entered into any other, any bad partnerships uh, since then because I, I entered partnerships very slowly. And so, but there's been a couple too, I can think of right away where, where I avoided partnering. Yeah. Um, and luckily, uh, we went through kind of a honeymoon phase and, and, you know, before really signing up, signing the paperwork. And, and luckily, you know, after the honeymoon, things were so sweet. So um, it was able to really kind of vet that out before really, really locking in with somebody. And one of the things I like about the real estate business and what we do is you can partner on individual deals, not necessarily, you know, in a business for the 30 year long term. And so it gives you the, the ability to really vet people out and really understand if it's somebody that you would want to uh, partner with. But I think in general, uh, everybody, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of this too, but everyone kind of overvalues their, uh, their skill set and, and, and the, the attributes that they can bring uh, to a partnership. And so I think it's important to really get to like, like the nitty gritty and really get some examples of you know, when it, when it gets down to it, who's really going to, who's going to be working hard, you know, who, who wants to go play golf, uh, and, uh, and understand those things and like get a couple examples of real process before you, you sign up for that long-term partnership. Right. That's a, that's a great, great, you know, I like just like another example I give is like, like I had an example of somebody who thought they could just raise millions and millions of dollars because they had, uh, they knew a lot of rich people. And at the end of the day, he couldn't really raise squat. And the, uh, you know, the, the whole partnership was going to be predicated on him focusing on, on capital raising. And, uh, and luckily, we, you know, we kind of tested it before and he came back and said, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I said, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> and so I think just, may, you know, again, just kind of trust but verify, right? Trust but verify before you sign up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's great. And then I think it's great advice over there is if you're thinking about creating a real estate firm, um, perhaps want to start with a few deals and every deal is a different structure. Um, and then once you kind of get a rhythm going and then that's kind of the time to think about, hey, is this suitable for a long term partnerships over here going more exclusives? Don't have to kind of jump into it. Um, six people is a lot like for that firms that uh, you guys are working on the partnerships on that for sure. Um, okay, so um, now kind of switching gear into the real estate uh, investing, how did you kind of got into the syndication and the, looking back, would you kind of do the same path? Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I spent probably more time than most just trying to build up an education. I mean, I mean, I'm the type of person that like, if I'm gonna go out and buy a TV, and my, my wife uh, loves slash hates this about me is if I'm gonna buy a TV, I'm gonna look at like 40 TVs to know <laughs> like, like, and I'm gonna get like the best TV, you know, and that's just that's just the type of person I am. Like, I want to know everything, every aspect. Like I was just driving my insurance broker crazy on the phone yesterday because he's like putting these policies in front of me. And I'm like, I'm like, I got to know the details. Like, what's this? What's that? What is it? You know, and, but I just, that's how I, I buy. And that's kind of how, how I do everything. I think the details, the devil's in the details. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and so I, I went from 2015, my first passive investment to 2019, 
uh, really about four, four and a half years before I actually like led my first, uh, my first syndication. And even that one, I was a co-sponsor where I was, I would say I was more sitting shotgun than, than leading, right? I was really learning from folks that had more experience. Um, so th- I think that's a long, like relatively long in like real estate syndication terms before somebody actually goes out and does their own deal. But I just, I just felt like there was a lot that, I didn't know. I mean, real estate was new to me, right? I was coming out of a career in management consulting, but I'd never been a real estate investor. Um, and I felt like even more than I, I knew I didn't know, there's probably a, a whole hell of a lot I didn't even know I didn't know, right? And so that's why I signed up for a couple of mentorship programs. Like, like one of them was where we met originally, uh, went through a couple of those, you know, just every book and podcast I could devour. And, um, and still have a few mentors today that I, that I really, and some are paid, some are unpaid that I use that uh, are really kind of my backstops to avoid making those big mistakes. And so, uh, no, I wouldn't do anything differently. I think every step that I did, even going to work for the private equity firm with 15,000 units was kind of what I saw as like my real estate MBA, you know, to go and see how a group that's been extremely successful does it at a very high level. And, and I spent a year there and it was a great education on, on how to do things. I'm able to take those things and carry forward. So I think every step in the process was thought out and, uh, and I wouldn't do things differently uh, now because I think it's given me a really solid base to, yeah. to build this company off of now and amazing connections um, at all different levels of, of kind of operations and financing and, and everything really. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so working for the asset management firm, um, I think that's great because everything what you just told me is just displayed how thorough you are uh, with approach to life. Um, and uh, oftentimes us entrepreneurs gets really excited about something. So we just kind of go head first. That's definitely, um, you know, admire people who are like a like you who really thoroughly like plan out everything there. Um, so what are some big tips that you have learned from working for a firm that owns billions of assets? Um, and then what are some of these that you're going to take into your uh, investment or have already implemented into your investment firms? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one, one is that, Vertical integration has its pros and cons. Yeah, I think I think typically all you ever hear are the positives of vertical integration, and people really tout that as oh, we have our own property management company, we have this, we have that. Um, You know, being able to see a firm that it was totally fully integrated, uh, vertically integrated from you know purchase to construction to property management, even on the fine, even having their own people sourcing financing, insurance. Uh, materials like like everything um, there's it's extremely sophisticated at the same time um, you know there's something to be said about specificity of focus yeah. and you know there, there's something I used to tell the my consulting teams which was like you know you can't be productive if you're working on on too many things like I'd rather you move a mile in one direction than move an inch in a thousand directions right, right? and it's kind of the same thing if you're focused on too many things too many balls in the air uh it's it's tough to to really prioritize right and so so i saw that some uh the other thing i think is it's difficult to um it's it's if you have a third-party management company that you can fire based on non-performance then you can really hold them accountable Uh, and you can really choose the right firm for the right 
application, right? Because some property management firms are good at big class A projects. Others are good at small C class projects and anywhere in between. Uh, when you have your own, you, you kind of have your and you have to use them. It's kind of like that is the only option. And, and it can be difficult at times to get accountability because you can't fire yourself. Right. Uh, you know, you can fire individuals, but but it really comes down to, um, you know, the, the leadership and the ability to to hold those those folks accountable. And I, and I saw, you know, at times issues there. Yeah. So I think those were just seeing the kind of the pros and cons side of the vertical integration model, um, you know, and but some of the some of the good things I saw were just, you know, the sophistication that they took related to market research and the tools that they used and related to underwriting. I mean, uh, you know, a 50 page underwriting spreadsheet with with way more detail than anything I'd ever seen put out by, you know, some of the guru teams or, or different things that, that really let you get to like exactly when everything's going to happen and really dial in, uh, which, you know, I'm a detailed person. So I like that. Right. right. Um, those, those, the sophistication of how they approach financing, how they approach financing at like a portfolio level, not just an individual deal, but how they manage across 60 plus projects, right. Yeah. Uh, liquidity and cash flow, and, uh, you know, and, and the, their different exposure, uh, to different areas. I mean, all of that. And then sophistication on how they put their insurance together. I mean, insurance is one of the biggest costs and it's only growing. And so by being able to take, you know, create master policies and do different things, they were able to save a lot that makes them more competitive uh, on individual deals because they're, you know, they have kind of a set finance, set price across their whole portfolio versus a deal by deal basis. So those things I think do give a competitive advantage and and, and were great lessons uh, that I learned. That's so fantastic because uh, I, I just learned so much from like this session as well from you, Ken. Uh, what, what do you see the uniqueness of these markets versus, let's say, coastal uh, or some of the big metros? Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of unique characteristics. Um, one is just lack of competition. Not lack of, but less competition, right? I mean, the, the markets that everybody is investing in are just that the markets everybody's investing in and every every new syndicator is being pushed toward those markets you know if you think florida dallas uh phoenix right even vegas um atlanta the these markets are performing extremely well right from a rent growth standpoint population growth standpoint all that but they're also hyper saturated from a there's just 30 people like me on every deal trying to buy every deal, you know, and, and I think it makes it difficult to be able to pay the right price. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not a high cap rate person. Like to me, cap cap rates are not good or bad. Right. I mean, some, some people think three caps are bad. Cap rates aren't bad. They just are what they are. You just have to change your, your strategy based on what the cap rate is. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you said you were doing projects in Phoenix. Those are probably three, three and a half caps. And like you said, there's not a, a bunch of cash flow at the beginning, but for every dollar you put into the property, right, and raise an OI, you're going to get a better return. Right. So, so, so cap rates aren't good or bad. That being said, the Midwest has relatively higher cap rates, which equate to relatively stronger cash flow yields, yeah. right? So our projects still, you know, very much have strong cash flow, seven, eight, nine percent year one. You know, average cash flows in, in, in the nine plus, even 10, 11, you know, the double digit range from a 
average cash flow basis uh, for cash on cash. And so for cash flow investors, you know, that that's a real positive in the Midwest. Right. I think, uh, you know, additionally, the Midwest doesn't follow the same cycles as many of uh, as the coasts, especially, but even even as some of the, the hotter markets, you know, Phoenix is up huge. Phoenix was also one of the hardest hit during 08, you know, and, and, and Vegas as well. And that's why that's why they're a little bit behind the curve of coming up because they were so far down and yeah, they're coming up, but, but it's just a, it's a cyclical place, right? It, where Midwest is kind of steady, eddy, slow growth upward yeah. and slow growth used to be two, 3%. I mean, we're seeing five to 6% rent growth in the Midwest, even at this point. Um, yeah. And some of our properties uh, we're seeing even more yeah. uh, in, in down in Kentucky and, and over in Ohio. And so, but yeah, but traditionally the Midwest has been about stability. It's been about you know good cash flow. It's been about um, you know really steady job environment. If you take Illinois out of the picture, it's a very uh, pro business, very pro uh, landlord environment. Yeah. You know, it, it's easy to evict. Uh, there's low taxes, um, and so those things are all are all really positive. And, and then from a city standpoint, I mean, we we look for cities where there's good job diversity, good job growth. I mean, jobs are the number one reason people live where they live, right? People live because where they're going to work. The only other reason they live there is because it's close to. Uh, they want their kids to go to a, a certain school, right? But but jobs are number one. So you got to follow job growth and. You know, the Midwest has seen great job growth, especially in the logistics field, because uh, we're just we're so centrally located. Right. Like there's a stat that from Indianapolis, you can reach 75 percent of the U.S. in one day. Um, and so we've got, you know, Walmart distribution centers, Amazon distribution centers, Louisville, Kentucky is uh, the North America headquarters for UPS uh, with their their big world port there. Uh, Indianapolis has the second largest FedEx facility in the world. So there, there's a lot that's going on from a logistics standpoint that have really been a boon uh, to the economies. And we've also benefited from uh, the, this remote work environment where folks right. can leave the coastal cities and move to more affordable locations. Right. And, and we're seeing a lot of tech jobs move into places like Indianapolis. The tech job growth has been pretty extreme uh, because of that, because they can keep their job and, and live in a more uh, cost-effective place. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then, so what do you have um, envisioned five years, seven years from, from here on whatever the midterm goes are for your new business for your for your you know investment business yeah yeah that, that's a good question um you know as far as goals it, it's really for me now about um creating a, a standard repeatable process right which, which we talked about which so in everything that i do we're creating we're creating templates so that we can do it better and faster the next time right so so you, you lay that foundation and then in, in five years i'd like to have uh you know, moving from largely using contractors now to having more of a, of a dedicated team, uh, bringing some of that in-house and, and really having a team where, you know, I'm able to step out of a lot of, of the day-to-day -day and, and really lead more from a strategic standpoint, you know, having a director of acquisitions, a director of marketing, director of investor relations, and, and putting that structure into place mm -hmm. that allows me to, to take, to step out again, a lot of that day-to-day -day activity and, and be more strategic. 
And so spending, my goal is to spend less time in the business and more time on the business as we continue to grow. And so that, that's how I'm developing the business from the very beginning is, is really to replace myself in, in all of those roles. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, that's kind of a great transition into like the family aspect. You have three kids. Um, we always ask our guests, how do you actually help them to be more financially literate, to be more um, entrepreneurship or just being financially more literate uh, for your kids? What do you do with them? Yeah, well, they're pretty small. They're they're five, four, and two. So they're, they're just now, you know, my... Like they don't exactly understand what I do. They know I'm around a lot. They know I work in the basement, right? I don't go into an office every day, but, um, but you know, I think they're just kind of getting my five-year-old, just getting to the point where, where she can start to understand some of those things. But, but as they get older, um, I, the most important thing for me from a kind of, I guess business side of things is, is to impart my knowledge on them and just my my perspective of being an entrepreneur and being your own boss. And, and I'll be happy with whatever career they they go after. I mean, they may not have the same kind of entrepreneurial drive that, that I do, and that's okay. Um, but if they do, I'll definitely support that and, and want them to just understand. I, I think basics of like you know, God, I don't know who knows how much college is going to cost by the time they're, they're there in, in yeah. like 12, 12 more years. But, uh, I don't know if I can imagine that's going to be worth it. Um, maybe it will, if they want to be a doctor, but you know, other than that, I think there's a lot of ways to, to learn what you want to do. I think college is a great experience if you want to kind of find yourself and just have a lot of fun, but yeah. I don't know if the return on the investments there. So I think that'll be a, a, I don't think it's as clear cut as it used to be. Right. Um, I think that, you know, I want to teach them to, to have multiple streams of income, right? Always have a plan B, never be beholden to, to one job or one employer, always have options, yeah. um, and, and teach them how to, how to develop that portfolio. And then I think just teach them how to, how to be smart financially. I think so many people don't even know how to like balance a budget or create a budget or like manage your own personal finances or, or how to get a mortgage or how to like all these things that are so basic to our life, but like, no, we're never taught them. Like everybody has to finish, figure that stuff out on their own for the most part. And yeah. so I think just bringing some of that baseline liter like literacy uh, will be extremely important. And then just giving them the mindset that they can do whatever they want. Yeah. I mean, that that's really critical to me is there's no limitations. The only limitations you have are the ones you put on yourself. And like yeah. my daughter at this point, I love it because she's like, she wants to be like a baby doctor, an animal doctor, a ballerina, like an astronaut. At some, sometimes it's like, if you want to do all those things, you do all those things. Like you could yeah. do it, yeah. you know? And uh, I think that, I think, I think our ambition and our, and our imagination gets, gets pushed down by school and by well-meaning parents and by others saying, oh, you need to be more realistic, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't think so. Really? I, think, I think you should be completely unrealistic and, <laughs> and with, with what your goals are. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Um, and the last question we have is, how do you balance work life? How is that like lifestyle for you right now? How do you, because entrepreneur, as driven entrepreneurs, we tend to work very, very much because this is what drives us, is what really interesting to us. How do you kind of balance that with your family? Yeah. Yeah. My wife's good at holding me accountable to this. And, uh, and, and we try to do a lot of pre planning so that I can, uh, you know, get the time in that I need. But, uh, you know, essentially it's, 
I mean, just give my, my day to day rundown is, you know, you get up about six, uh, get ready. The kids get up at six 30. We get the kids off to school, um, about eight o'clock. I, you know, from eight to five, I'm working at five. I shut it off, try to spend from like five to eight with kids and family, uh, really try not to be on calls and things if, if, if I don't have to be, so I can really have that dedicated time. And then at eight o'clock or as soon as we get the kids down, it could be nine 30, who knows? Uh, usually I'm popping the laptop back open and trying to take care of take care of some other things, uh, whether it's related to my podcast or other ancillary things I'm doing. So, you know, I probably work 10, 11 hour days for the most part. Um, usually a couple hours, you know, on the weekends. Um, but you know, I think you, I think it's less about the quantity of time you spend and more about the quality of the time that you spend. So I think being able to put the phone down, really trying to be mindful about putting my phone down and just like putting it on the other side of the room and not having it when I'm with the kids. Cause like, you know, you can be there physically, but if you're not really there paying attention, like it doesn't really matter if they just see you on your phone all the time. I think that's a terrible example to set. So, so right now it's more about the quality than the quantity of time with them. But, but look, that, that's, cause you said five to seven year plan. My five to seven year plan is, is to ha have more time with the family as, as they get the business to a place where it can run a lot on its own. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome, Ken. This is a great, great session have you over here with us today um and uh we're just gonna wrap this uh episode up to thank you so much for your time today yeah. yeah lisa thank you so much for having me on it was good to catch up and and share some of my stories so hope everybody enjoyed it and if folks want to learn more about me they can go to kentritter.com uh check out my website you can sign up for our newsletter to be an investor um you can check out my my podcast as well it's called ritter on real estate and so, um, yeah, appreciate the time to be on and, and hope, uh, hope we stay in touch. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're going to be putting all that in the show notes as well uh, for you to find a way to reach to Ken. All right. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day.